So I woke up this morning and I was in a tremendous amount of pain. It kind of hurts to stand and to walk, so I may end up plopping on a stool here. Um, the most strenuous thing I did yesterday was make chili, so I can only uh, cost it to, uh, you know, stupid devil. But, uh, um, so I'm gonna do the best I can to uh, get through this, and uh, I'm going to sit on a stool because you know how the doctor always asks you what the, your pain is on a pain scale of 1 to 10? Kind of sitting at a 7. So I believe God will heal me. I believe that uh, um, he's the one who put this word to go forth this morning. So uh, regardless of what my flesh or what uh, my, my body will try to throw at me, I'm just going to do the best I can to get through it because uh, Satan's a liar and this yeah. flesh is temporary. So, today we're going to be talking about the gospel, and I did a little experiment this week where I went to a number of Christians, and I asked them uh, to look at me as I don't know anything about the Bible and explain the gospel to me. Well, originally, I was going to invite somebody from the crowd to come up and, you know, exchange in that dialogue, but what I found was about three minutes into this conversation, about everybody's ready to punch me in the face because I just asked questions they weren't necessarily ready for. And uh, there was one person I did it with. They, uh, they essentially, like I asked a question, they, they said, for example, the part where, I'll give you an example of how the dialogue went. You know, so what's the gospel? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that none should perish, that all should have everlasting life. Okay, what did he have to give him for? Oh, because of your sin. What's sin? Oh, it's your transgression against God. What does that mean? How have I transgressed God? Oh, well, you know, God uh, set up the, the, you know, the law and... We violated that. And I'm like, oh, okay, so, so let me get this straight. You told me God is love, but he wants to punish me for something that I'm inherently going to do anyway because I'm a sinner by nature and choice? And then he just took his coffee and was like, yep! <laughs> that was just one of them. Another person went off and they cried for 10 minutes. Um, and the, po the point in this is I don't want, I, I didn't do it today because I didn't want to make anybody feel bad because what it shows is, number one, I think a lot of times us Christians, we aren't used to answering the hard questions about the faith. And number two, um, sometimes we don't know the answers to the questions that are asked of us. And that's, that's okay. Not everybody's going to know everything. But, you know, apart from those two examples, I asked other people who were pastors, other people who were supposed scholars, and they couldn't articulate fine points of a simple gospel that is what we're putting our faith in for salvation. I think one of the reasons why American Christians get so pulled aside by every wind of false doctrine, and you see all of these you know, cultish churches around us because we don't have a full understanding of what the gospel is. 
we don't understand the full implications of the gospel. And the gospel is more than just Jesus died so you wouldn't go to hell. The implications of the gospel cover from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. Everything in between and those things which are seen and unseen. The gospel is, it plays out in the entire Bible. And if we're not students of the Bible, if we're not in there reading and understanding it, learning about the nature of man as opposed to the relationship we have with God. We won't be ready for answering these questions to others, but we also don't understand fully why we're putting our faith in Christ. It's the difference between the milk of the Bible and the meat of the Bible. And so many times, Christians never go past the milk. John 3.16, and Jesus loves me, this I know, that's the milk of the word. We Christians are called to deeper than that. We're called to chew on the meat of it, to understand the full implications of it, to go deeper than that. Because as our understanding of the gospel and its implications throughout time increase, we're better equipped to present it to people that have no idea. Aww. Whenever I hear that cry, my heart just breaks. I'm like, oh, get her, oh, just give her hugs. Um, Paul was talking to the Corinthians in chapter three, and he said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. There's a lot of American Christians that are still in milk stages that have been Christians for decades. And it's not, I don't even think it's necessarily a fault of their own alone because the American Christendom model as it was set up from the 18th, 19th, 20th century was you bring a person to church and the pastor takes care of it. So there's no need to get into there to study, to understand these things if you just got to bring someone on a Sunday. The thing is that's not going to work anymore. You know, we live in a society now that is post-Christian. And what I mean by post-Christian is it's post-Christendom. Uh, we had a good run here in America where uh, Jesus and Christianity was present at the founding and it was a social norm to be a Christian. And progressively, that has been indoctrinated out of us as a nation to the point now where everything is relative, nothing is true, and um, you know, they've even, uh, there's people who have said that we live in a post-truth society now, which you can kind of see, because everybody's truth is subjective. First Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Part of healthy Christian growth and maturity is the understanding of and the ability to articulate the truth of the gospel to others. It's hard to, how can we say that we're being changed by something that we can't articulate? And I'm, I'm not saying God can't, I'm saying how do we say it? 
we should understand what God's doing in us. We should understand why he's doing what he's doing. And we need to make reading the scriptures a priority. There's no way around that. It has to be a fixture in our lives. We need to make it a focal point. We need to make it as important as water and food in our lives, if not more. And I'm not saying this to, you know, put the, you know, idolize the Bible if that's a weird thing, because here's the thing. Plenty of people will be Bible study nerds, and then they just use what they learned as a weapon to tear other people down. I'm talking about we go in there submissive to God saying change me from the inside out with what you have in here. It says that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of the bone and the marrow. It's very sharp. And God carves out our character and our motives as we submit ourselves to the scriptures. And apart from that, we're not going to understand the implications of what's happening around us, of the implications of what God's doing in us, and we're not going to know how to communicate that to a lost world that, want, you know, that wants to know what's going on in us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, those who will persecute you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good than if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Part of engaging a lost world, especially in this uh, post-Christian society, means there's going to be persecution that comes along with it. But it says, you know, Paul is, or Peter's telling them right there, we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. Your average person now is going to ask questions deeper than, you know, oh, uh, so Jesus died, hell, bless you. And, um... We need to understand those implications. We need to be able to, we don't even have to be super articulate because as I'll get into here in a second, bless you, the, the good news is that we as Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Everything that we do in this life is empowered by him. And he, and Jesus even promises that the Holy Spirit, the helper, is going to bring everything to our remembrance that he's taught us. We need to be taught it for him to bring it up. And a lot of times we don't make the commitment to put it in there so that when the time comes when we need that, the Holy Spirit's the one who's flipping the Rolodex and pulling out the scripture that you need. He's the one who's referencing the truth, but, you know, are you gonna put it in there for him to work with it? So the implications of the gospel. It's more, like I was saying before, it's more than just Jesus saves you from hell. There's so much more to that. The gospel redemption story starts in Genesis chapter three. When God declares 
that he is going to bring about the woman's offspring that will crush the serpent's head. So, one of the things you'll notice in popular culture, do you ever know, there's a lot of emphasis to make sure there's no pointing back to the biblical account of creation. Because if you can erase original sin, or at least the memory of original sin, what need do you have for a savior? If we're all animals and we're descended from monkeys, there's nothing wrong. And I wanna, and I wanna put this out here too. A lot of people who, you know, don't immediately hop on the evolution bandwagon. People will say, oh, you're anti-science. I'm not anti-science. I'm very pro-good science. The thing is, evolution as it stands is a consensus science where a bunch of people got together and decided, yeah, that's, that's really good, but it's not. It's not the full picture. It in itself remains a theory with many holes still in it. And there's a reason I'm going here. Because the origin of man and the, the original sin is what Jesus is saving us from. It's part of what he's saving us from and redeeming us from. Cons- consensus science isn't always good. Because consensus science once said that it was beneficial for the human race to selectively breed itself and eliminate people of dark skin to better society which is why we have organizations like Planned Parenthood. Consensus science once said that sickness was in the blood and you needed to bleed people in order to cure them and use leeches. Consensus science says today that for some reason, a panda fetus inside of a panda is going to be a panda as where a human fetus inside of a human is a parasitic collection of cells that can just be eliminated at any time. A lot of people will attack uh, you, know, you as being anti-science when you point back to the creation account. There's more scientific evidence for intelligent design than there is for evolutionary science. And it's important to know that because a lot of Christians, <laughs> they'll take a shift and they'll try to be like, oh no, God could work through evolution. The Bible is the Bible for a reason. This is truth from beginning to end. And if there's one thing in this book that's not true, what hope can we have in any single verse in it? You know, we build our lives on the Bible. If we're going to concede one little thing, then what, you know, if something is like, oh yeah, evolution, that's God said he created everything in a system in his way. If we can't put our faith in that account, why can we put our faith in the rest of it? And your typical worldly person is going to look at that and be like, well, you don't believe this part, why should I believe this part? Because it's all just stories, right? That having been said, the implications go back all the way to Genesis 3, like I was saying. And you see where God created everything, good and he created humans, and it was very good. Humans being the only creature that was created in his image. The other, uh, one of the characteristics of being created in God's image is that we have a freedom of will. 
And it was that freedom of will that allowed for mankind to be seduced into eating of the fruit. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, it was, uh, you know, they just, they submitted that over to Satan and, you know, they just listened to Satan. But they listened to Satan because of their own desire to be gods. That's the thing that Satan waves in front of them. He doesn't say, eat the fruit and worship me. He says, eat the fruit and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Immediately you see the consequences from that. Man tries to cover up their shame and God has to offer the first sacrifice of blood for the sins of man in the garden. He kills animals, gives them furs, covers them. And he has to cast them out of the garden. The consequences of sin. You look next into Genesis chapter four and you see Cain and Abel, the first recorded murder. And then you, as you read through Genesis, you see how it, humankind just escalates towards wickedness. To the point where God laments the fact that he ever made man at all and chooses and says, you know what, I'm gonna just erase the whole thing. And then he chooses Noah. Noah builds the ark. Noah preaches repentance for 120 years and nobody listens. So only Noah and his family are saved from the coming destruction. This is the second time God sacrifices with blood for the sins of man and he punishes everyone. Even after the flood, these people that were God-fearing, they weren't perfect. And one of the first things you read about Noah doing after the flood is uh, he gets drunk disorderly and his kids shame him. You know, I don't know if you any guys remember that part. Um, <laughs> they don't teach that in uh, kids' church with Noah and the ark. Um, <laughs> but you see this common trend where mankind always drifts towards wickedness no matter what they've got in front of them. God started over with just this one family and they eventually drift towards wickedness. God rescues an entire people out of bondage, sets himself up at the center of their culture and the center of their identity, and it's still, you have people that drift towards wickedness. See, through all of this, the people were like, nah, I got this, whenever God would offer his mercy and his grace. God gave them the law, because in his heart he knew they were gonna be like, we can fulfill the law, we've got this. And God puts forth his righteous standard through Moses and mankind still drifts towards wickedness. Now we know it's written down what we're not supposed to be doing. The point in all of this is you can see this, this trend in human history, not just in the Bible, but when you look at human history itself, 
mankind always drifts towards wickedness unto their own destruction. And God, knowing this, understood fully that the only thing that would be satisfactory to bring this, to bring us out of this cycle of death and destruction was paying for the sins with his very own blood and giving us a new heart. Because when you read in Genesis chapter six, it says that every meditation of man's heart was evil continually. Jesus said that one of the signs that you'll know when, you know, he's going to return is when it was like it was in the days of Noah. Not raining a lot, but every meditation of man's heart was evil continually. I can't turn on the news or read a news story or frankly even open Facebook now without seeing that coming to pass. Some of the people that claim the most tolerance are some of the most, have done some of the most vile things to each other. And I'm not just talking about secular humanists, I'm talking about Christians. It's a human problem. The difference is whose righteousness we're wearing, which I'll get to in a minute. God promises during this time of the temple and the tabernacle through his prophets that he himself is going to come one day and take care of this problem of hu- that humanity deals with. He says he's going to give us a new heart. He's going to give us a savior, a messiah. And the Jews looked forward to this. And God's last communication was to Malachi and then 400 years of silence. And then we find John the Baptist on the scene. Even though we learn of him in the New Testament, John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant prophet. He said that the Lord was coming quickly and that we needed to repent. He carves the way for Jesus and Jesus comes. He calls all to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He points to himself as God and acknowledges Peter correct when he calls him the Messiah and says very clearly he's going to have to suffer and die and be raised three days later. This happens. He commissions his disciples to go into all the earth and to make other disciples and he promises them power from on high. They receive it in the upper room. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers and then they go out into the world to preach and to make disciples. One of my favorite parts of the New Testament is where God saves the chief persecutor of the Christians, Paul, Saul, just because he can. Because he's God. He's all like, yeah, now this guy was killing me, boom, he's mine. The apostles continue the building of the church. Many letters are written to encourage the church and John even records a, an account of meeting with the resurrected glorified Christ. And we catch a glimpse of what's to happen in the age to come. Now to understand the implication of the gospel, we need to study all of that. We need to, we have to understand that we have to look at everything through the lens of Jesus. 
and understand that Jesus was the plan from the beginning and he is the plan in the end and that he is going, he is fulfilling everything and he is going to fulfill everything in the end. All of that to say that's a lot of stuff that happens in the Bible and there's a lot that happens in between that I never covered. All of that has implications to our understanding of the gospel. All of it. On the surface, there's a little bit. But if we're meat eaters, we're going to go after the steak of the word. We need to dive into this stuff. I covered all of that ju- because I need, I need us to understand that the gospel is everything. The gospel is from beginning to end it's essential to the way that we view the world, to the way that we understand everything. It's not just give your life to Jesus and be saved. There's, that's a part. That's this little milk chunk up here. And part of letting the gospel transform us from the inside out is diving into the richness of the Bible. There's so much... Lucy can tell you how annoyed she was just as I spent 12 hours diving into this. Every five minutes, I'm like, Lucy, you got to check this thing out. And she's like, I get it. There's something new, you know. Well, she wasn't like that. But as I sat there and I'm studying for this, I really found myself questioning, how can people be bored with the Bible? I can understand maybe with numbers, because that's essentially just a survey and a list. I get it. But when you, look, when you read the Bible from the perspective of you're saved, and, this is, and it, it just opens up to you that you're saved from this. David, in his immorality, that's us. Jezebel, in him, him, her immorality, that's us. We have a habit of making ourselves the hero of Bible stories. We're not. We're the villain. And Jesus is the hero. And you, as you read the scriptures, you see the very things that you know you've been guilty of in these characters in the Bible and realize you yourself are saved from them in Christ. Yeah, so somebody's going to post on Twitter later, Pastor Mike said that we're all Jezebel. (laughs) You were. You're not anymore. We'll get into that too. We as Christians are no longer under the law. The law is, you know, what God presented as a covenant to engage with his people to keep them holy for the coming of the Messiah. There was the judicial law, which was how the law was carried out. There was the moral law, which is, you know, what you're, how you're supposed to interact with the world and with others. And there was the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was things like, um, you know, you had to bring a certain animal of a certain type. You can't eat shellfish. You can't have a 
can't have clothing of mixed fibers. Um, you have to give 10% for the upkeep of the temple. Yes, that's an Old Testament ceremonial law thing. And Jesus said that he was coming to fulfill that law, that it wasn't going to pass away. This is the good news of it. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, when you read that verse with the gospel understanding of from beginning to end, it opens up a whole new world of understanding. Because you understand that Jesus, who's the Alpha and the Omega, as he's saying these words, he knows that one day he's going to return, that the new Jerusalem will be placed on the earth, that the white throne judgment's going to happen, and that he will be our God and we will be his people as he lives with us. You understand that Jesus, in his purpose here on this earth, he didn't waver. He fully understood the ramifications of what was going to take place. And we tend to read the words of Jesus from the understanding sometimes of that's just what he was saying in that moment. Jesus is God. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end everything in between. And when he speaks, he speaks from the perspective of as one who has seen the beginning and the end all at the same time. And that is part of what fills Christians with joy because we're even more sure of our salvation. We're even more sure of the fact that this wasn't just a coincidence. We're even more sure of the fact that he did what he said he was going to do. The law of God has consequences and all of creation is subject to it. And Jesus fulfilling the law, it's, a, it's something that he, he finished on the cross for the, for the sacrifice for our sins, but the ulti, his ultimate fulfillment of the law comes when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And just for disclaimer, it's not like everything's going to burn. He makes everything new. Some people are like, oh, I'm just going to trash everything and do all this stuff. One thing that I noticed is that God is about redemption. He redeems those things which he's made from the beginning. So he's going to redeem the earth, make the heavens and earth brand new. He's going to bring forth the heavenly city, which is a mock-up of the you know, city of Jerusalem and the temple. And I never noticed this until last night because I always used to joke with the glorified bodies that, you know, I hope that my glorified body has me as like six, seven in Puerto Rican because, you know, uh, you know, average height, chunky German white guy is just not working for me. And um, as I was reading, you know, I saw, I was reading the scriptures and I saw where, uh, it was Paul who said that, you know, we will be raised just as he was raised. Jesus was raised in the same body he was crucified in, only it was glorified. Jesus is going to glorify our bodies as they stand right now. 
So it's not gonna be like you're putting on a new spacesuit. It's gonna be like you're putting on the old spacesuit and everything and it's redeemed. No more aches and pains. No more desire to do what's contrary to God. He takes that thing which he created and redeemed it. He could burn it all and start over. He decided not to. Instead of flooding the earth, he could have evaporated, you know, just, earth's gone. No, he started over with what he made originally. I don't know why I went there, but God is about redeeming his creation because what he made in the first place was good. The new covenant begins when a lot of people think that the new covenant is, you know, the New Testament books. It's not when it begins. New covenant begins at the moment Jesus sheds his last drop of blood and breathes his last breath for the sacrifice <laughs> uh, for on behalf of us. That's when the new covenant begins. He says it's finished. And this is where the law, where the judicial law and the ceremonial law are fulfilled on our behalf. See, the things the Israelites did, they did to keep them set apart. And that entire temple ceremonial system, there's a re- God was very specific about walking into the temple and tearing the curtain of the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. He was saying this was done. This system, we're done. It fulfilled its purpose. The temple of God is now with me- is, is men. The moral law and the judicial law, Jesus was perfect on our behalf. He fulfilled every single part of the moral law on our behalf. And in the judicial law, he stepped in as our sacrifice on our behalf. Someone who was completely perfect, spotless, and blameless stepped in and took the punishment that was for us. He literally took everything that we were supposed to be entitled to, death, punishment, torment, Awful, evil, sickness, lack, everything you could think of. That's what he took on himself. And in return, he gave us eternal life, hope. He gave us healing for these bodies, even though they will be redeemed one day in the ultimate healing when he gives, makes them brand new. He gives us everything that we didn't deserve. In the Old Testament, it was a coveted thing to be able to experience the presence of God. Only the kings and the prophets got a chance to do that. And it wasn't like, and it, it was just a coming upon them. It was like getting together with a, a good friend for coffee. You, you know, getting to be with them. And something brand new happens in this new covenant. The Bible says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As where once men walked 
with God side by side, we now walk with him jointly. It's one of those things where people would always say they feel like God's a million miles away, and the pr- one of the promises we have is that God is with us continually. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A third of the Trinitarian God resides within us, gives us life, gives us power, and he's never far from us. I don't know why I'm going here either, but there's plenty of us that would say they've had those times where they felt far from God. Some to even where it's points of desperation that they were never intended to go. God is never, God's closer to you than your own skin. The things that Jesus promises, he makes good on. And when he said he'd never leave us or forsake us, he was so about that that he decided he was going to join his nature with ours. We can see through the entirety of human history that apart from the intervention and redemption of God, man will always drift towards depravity. They'll continue a cycle of death and pain and frankly just being awful towards each other. All those things which are laid up in the fruit of the flesh, those things get magnified more and more and more. And the good news in this is that God steps into human history and breaks that cycle. See, it's not just saving us from death and hell. It's saving us from the cycle of repeating that wickedness, from descending into those places of darkness. We are a people that's set apart. We are not destined to fulfill those things which we see happening around us. That's why we can rejoice in being free from the sins that so easily beset us. We are are clothed in a perfect righteousness from Jesus who, as we said from before, sees beginning from end and everything that you ever will do was paid for on the cross. Everything. So as we walk out our daily lives and we sin and we repent for it, God knew that was gonna happen and already took care of it. A lot of people get caught up in the cycle of beating themselves up over and over for the things that they they did. The all-seeing God who set into, into motion the plan of redemption from Genesis 3 saw that sin from beginning to end. You don't need to beat yourself up over anything that you do, ever. That's the freedom and glory in this grace that we have from God. That this eternal being who, by the way, had every right to destroy us. Because we look at it as just minor transgressions. Every time we violate the law of God, it's cosmic treason. He demanded perfectness. He demanded holiness. He demanded not one fault be made. And the punishment for not following that was death. And Jesus said, I'll do it. So that's fulfilled. 
That's fulfilled for us believers. We don't have to beat ourselves up. As a matter of fact, when you choose to beat yourself up over a sin God's already forgiven you for, you're choosing to assert yourself to the throne of God again. Your beating yourself up is idolatry and something you should repent for. That's for someone else here as much as it is for me. So when we have a clear picture of beginning to end, we can let these truths soak into us and understand the implications of them. Because God saw beginning from end, he saw my sin from beginning to end. And that punishment was paid out on the cross at that one point in history, and I now walk in that redemption. It's a redemption that's constantly playing out. It's not something that has yet been completely fulfilled. We have been made new in our spirits. We will be made new in our bodies. And everything around us in this earth will be made new. Everything. All of that... That's going to take longer than a cup of coffee with a friend that's asking some questions about the Bible. I'll give you that. But how can we answer the questions that they do ask if we don't have an understanding of it ourselves? At some point, we as Christians, we're going to need to present the gospel. We're going to need to preach Jesus to somebody. And... One of, one of my pet peeves about things, there's uh, people that will often misquote St. Francis of Assisi saying, preach the gospel always, but use words when necessary. Yeah, he didn't actually say that. What he did actually write was, no brother should preach contrary to the form and regulations of the Holy Church, nor unless he has been permitted by his minister, all the friars should therefore preach by their deeds. Essentially, he said, make sure your deeds match your words. That's a lot different than preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Because inherently, the gospel can't be conveyed apart from words. Words are vessels that carry powerful truths in them. The power of life and death is in the tongue. The gospel leads to good works. It's not the substance of the gospel. The good works are just a part of what comes from it. And we can go into communities and we can feed the uh, the homeless, give them shelter, uh, set up health clinics, do all this stuff. And if we don't present the truth of who Jesus is, then they're only temporarily better. They'll have a full belly for a little bit of time. Meanwhile, they'll still always be hungry for the bread of life. There's no presenting the gospel without words. And words can sometimes be uncomfortable because they convey the essence of truths that are held deeply. So if you're faithful to present the gospel, there's going to be uncomfortable conversations as lovingly as you try to approach the gospel message, essentially, 
you're setting forth a siege on somebody else's well-built self-temple. You can present the gospel in a loving way and you can convey truth with compassion and sincerity and you're still lobbing catapult rounds at these temples to false gods that they've been building up their entire lives. So don't be surprised because there's gonna be backlash no matter how nice you present the gospel because you're lopping the heads off of idols. It doesn't mean you should uh, kick the door down like a jerk. You should, uh, you know, I'm, I maybe I should write a, ki- a kid's book called The Battering Ram of Kindness. I don't know. But no matter how loving you do it, you're still going to come across people with objections, especially in this culture, one of where everything, everything's relative. Eventually, the point is going to come up that somebody has transgressed the law of God, whether it's the moral law. Because here's the thing. We're in Christ who has fulfilled the law. We're no longer subject to those things. That law hasn't passed away, and therefore everybody else is subject to it. Every facet of it. It seems weird to think, but because they're still subject to that law, every time you see uh, your typical pagan going in and uh, you know mowing down on all-you-can-eat shrimp, they're transgressing the law of God. And it sounds weird, but the Bible makes it clear that if you are not in Christ, you're under the law, and you're subject to that law, and your only hope for redemption is in that law. Uh, the way I was thinking of trying to present it was, you know, at some point, the casual subject of cosmic treason is going to come up in your gospel tres- uh, presentation. And it's not your job. How can I say this delicately? I probably can't. It's not your job to mitigate the damage caused by presenting the, it's, it's not your job to mitigate the get damage caused by presenting the truth. It's really not. If you've done all you can to present it in love and kindness from a sincere heart, regardless, there's going to be consequences. Uh, uh, consequences, you know, there's something that comes after that in sequence. People are going to say no. People are going to call you a fool. They're going to call you ridiculous, racist, sexist, homophobe, xenophobe. Other phobes. I need an updated list of the phobes. We can't let that stir us from, uh, you know, keep us from sharing the truth. We're saved from the weight of the law, the judgment of God, and we've been literally taken to the point where from being enemies of God to being his adopted children.
there's a lot to the gospel that's hard to convey in a couple of Bible verses or, you know, uh, even a gospel tract. Some people, you know, they have success in presenting the gospel with gospel tracts, hanging them out, you know, doing stuff like that. To really understand the weight of what we've been set free from and truly bask in the grace of God, we need to have an understanding of the big picture, the entire picture. And apart from jumping into the depths of scripture, we're never gonna have that. I get it that life is busy. I have a kid. I know that sometimes it can be really hard. But I can also tell you that the 12 hours of study that I put into this has been the most eye-opening and fulfilling time I've had in years. Because it's made my understanding of the riches of what God's done for us so much deeper and the appreciation of what he did for me personally. We're transformed as we bask in the glory of God, not as we try to obey the law. Because the law was fulfilled for us. There's a supernatural appreciation that comes from looking into the mirror that is the word of God. Seeing the man that you were and understanding the person that God is making you. And it's progressive little bit at a time. But one day, we understand that it will be fulfilled. The good work that he started in us, he'll be faithful to complete it. The good work that he started in this earth, in this creation, he'll be faithful to complete it, to redeem it. People who have uh, known me closely have known that I've gone for a couple of years grasping for hope, for something better. And as I've sat down and I've studied the gospel in depth, it's like a refreshing wind has flown into me. And it's nothing that you can have apart from the truth of the gospel. that refreshing, that power, that hope, you're not going to find it in anything else. It truly brings the dead back to life. And I implore you today to set your lives to study this to understand the implications of the gospel. Not just so you can share it, but honestly, sometimes the person that needs to be evangelized the most is you. If you want to be transformed, the only way it's going to happen is basking in the glory of God. 
that is the grace of his salvation. Knowing those truths and having them set into us. See, the wonder in it is that we open the pages, we read them, and the helper, the Holy Spirit, the third of the Trinity that resides in us forever, he burns those in our hearts and our minds. He changes us from the inside out. Every day we submit ourselves to that, you're never the same. We live in a world where everybody's trying to fill the void, everybody's trying to find hope. I've found no deeper hope in anything other than the promise that he will fulfill what he started. So I implore you, please, if you don't make Bible reading a habit, do it. It seems so simple, but the rewards are so rich. Why do you have the hope in you of Christ? As I sat down and asked myself that question, I found some gaps in my own understanding. I think we all will, because as I learned in just sitting down for 12 hours to hash this out, I probably could have, I probably could have taken up to the Super Bowl potluck and then next week on just some of the stuff that I gathered. We need to be people of the Bible if we're gonna be Christians in this world. We need to have that fire ignited within us, that hope that lives within us. It's not gonna come from binge-watching Stranger Things. It's not gonna come from building up idols in your children and your spouses. I'm not saying spending time with any of those things is wrong. I'm saying that I know for me personally, this was a wake-up call that apart from submitting myself to God and his word every day, I will, have, I will not have what I need to pour out to the rest of this world. And that goes for the rest of you as well. The mission of evangelism of the world is not something that's on the pastors. It's something, the mission of reconciliation is something that's on every single one of us. And if you have, you, you know that you've had that point where somebody has come to you and asked about the hope that you hold within you. It's gonna happen again. I can tell you right now, just from studying human history, times are gonna get darker. People are gonna be searching for hope. Let's be ready with the truth of God's word and be ready to give an answer for the hope that lives within us. Because as all the world around us may be burning and cutting each other's throats, we'll be the church. We'll be walking in love and in truth. And it's going to be an anomaly to the world outside. So let's be ready for that. 
well, it's 12.09. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, thank you guys for coming out today. 